Hello film fans, how are you? I hope this finds you well and thoroughly entertained from the abundance, abundance of films that are available and around at the minute. Can I please draw your attention to one particular film that there hasn't been much promotion of it here in the UK and slightly baffled as to why that is, to be honest. Andrea Riseborough is, I think, one of our greatest talents in the UK. She's appeared in so many films and even when she's got small parts, like little parts, that she just makes such a big impression, whether that's, I'm thinking recently, things like The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. She had a very small part in that. Amsterdam. She was Christian Bale character's wife, but you just, she's so memorable. She plays the lead in a film called To Leslie and she just got an Oscar nomination for it quite rightly. But weirdly here in the UK, there's not been much talk of the film. Now you can get it on streaming services like Apple TV and Amazon Prime and I'd highly recommend that you do because she's brilliant in it and it's a really lovely film. Mark Maron's in it as well, who I absolutely love. So yeah, there's my little recommendation of viewing for you this week. It's not in cinemas, I don't think. I haven't seen it anywhere, but it's uh, it's one for you to watch um, at home and yeah, just mesmerised by her brilliant performance. So there we go. Also, can we say happy birthday to ourselves? Not in terms of how long we've been running, but how many episodes? 350. Man, I when we launched this podcast back in 2016... We had no idea how long this was going to go on for, if it was going to last a month, a year. Um, And here we are celebrating 350 episodes. I'm so proud of this podcast and every episode, I'm not complacent by it and I never take it for granted and I'm utterly thrilled and blown away when people want to come on and chat. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody who's listening or listened all our guests, everyone who's facilitated our guests and continues to do so. We are so genuinely grateful and what a way to celebrate it with another bonus episode in the company of a bit of a legend who's also celebrating a birthday soon, 25th anniversary of one of his films very soon. He is the legend that is James Cameron. People call him Jim. I'm not that familiar with him yet where I feel like I can call him Jim. I want to, but I won't just yet. James was on sparkling form as he joined me to discuss Avatar The Way of Water and I did talk to him about the 25th anniversary re-release of Titanic which has been kind of, it's had a makeover and it's going to be back out in cinemas. I also, within our conversation about that, asked him about that question that keeps coming back about Rose and Jack and the door. Hear what he's got to say. It's really, really funny. But without further ado, let's get into it. Avatar is scored by Simon Franklin. And we'll begin with his cue from the film Eclipse.
How are you, James? Hi, fine, thanks. Congratulations on response to the film. Yeah, people are people are definitely uh, going to see it. That's the important thing. <laughs> All other considerations are secondary. Um, like what good or you know what we intended it's all secondary i think you know from from having had the pleasure of spending time with you at the premiere in london and things that there are, i had a, a wonderful experience in your world there's so much to talk about when it comes to music but this might seem like a strange start of a question but you know for me in terms of being a a fan of of your films from the start and it was lovely thinking about today and just thinking back to something like the abyss you know, in mm -hmm. terms of that mm -hmm. that world and 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 the importance of of life and telling stories, even in that world back then, is something that resonated with you. And I wondered right. if there were, if yeah. there was any kind of through line at all, or any kind of connection for you, or that gave you any kind of inspiration. Well, no, you know, look, the abyss obviously was my response at that time in my my career and my development as a as a filmmaker to a lot of things I had been imagining, you know, for 20 years before that, you know, it's mm. all sort of in there someplace. And that comes from childhood influences and my desire to be an explorer, you know, and my desire to be a diver. And, you know, at the time I made the abyss, I was already an accomplished diver and had dived all over the world. Um, so I was working through that and my fascination with the, with the, the new kind of breakthroughs in deep ocean technology at that time as well, but also those themes of, you know, contact with an alien intelligence, what that means to us, our, you know, if you ever saw the long version of the abyss that had the, the aliens manifesting themselves with this giant tidal waves around the world, you know, this kind of fundamental question of, you know, us as humans, you know, are we good? Are we good? Are we good for each other? Are we good for the planet? You know, how might we be judged yeah. if seen from the outside? And I think that theme does progress forward into the Avatar films where I flip the script on the classic alien invasion story and say, okay, let's put ourselves into the, to the hearts and minds of a people who are being invaded by this, you know, technological force from afar and say, okay, what was it like? What was it like for Native Americans yeah. to see, you know, the, these technologically superior people coming in vast numbers uh, and, and disrupting the world around them, disrupting their ecosystems, killing off the bison, raising the forest? What, what would that have been like for them? And yeah. maybe even take it a little farther and step back and say, what, what does nature think of us? How would we be judged if nature itself had a voice? Which... In, the, in these movies, in these Avatar films, we give nature a voice. We give nature a, a persona, an intelligence, something that can respond and doesn't judge yeah. us very, very well. Uh, of course, I think it's important to point out, you know, pundits have said, oh, well, you're, you're anti-human. Of course, I'm not anti-human. People are buying tickets and going to see this, <laughs> this movie in vast numbers because they relate to the not V. They yeah. see the not V aspirationally you know, Absolutely. and say, I want to be more like them, you know, so we're seeing the Navi as that which is the better aspect of ourselves represented by them. And yeah. the lesser, you know, more venal, greedy aspect of ourselves represented by the actual humans in the in the story. So people, audiences have got it figured out. 
you know, yeah. it's it's certain sort of boneheaded pundits that haven't sort of figured it out, which is Ab fine. We, we'll always Absolutely. have those, and God bless them. They're a bit like the those two guys from the Muppet Show. That's how I describe the uh, the film critics. You know, those two the two grumpy guys who normally sit in yeah. the balcony. That's exactly. it. That's basically the world's film critics in my head, anyway. They're basically just <laughs> grumpy people. They probably don't enjoy their own lives. Exactly. They don't want anybody else to have any fun. You know, and they get all they get all wrapped up in kind of loops of pseudo intellectual thought. You know, yeah. because they all think they're smarter than they are. Just enjoy it. Let yourself enjoy something. What's so the, hard about that? Exactly. The music in this is, I was lucky enough to see it at the, the, the incredible Odeon in Leicester Square. And, you know, that sound right. system in there and that screen, the combination of that is the perfect place to see this film. And it's interesting because you feel a connection with the first film through the music as well yes. as the characters in the story. And so, you know, obviously the very sad passing of James between the first film and this one. And and Simon coming in to to you know take the reins and and bring in his creative you know wizardry in there, but but what were the conversations that you had about that? Because what's also interesting is that I believe that you know Simon was had to look at all the scripts for all these films that are to follow, so that there's a exactly. He knows, talk to me a little bit about about that right. and the conversations. Well, we were shooting uh, and capturing initially. I, I brought Simon in right at the beginning of the process. Now, I hadn't made a decision to have him compose the score. He was brought in to do Source. Mm -hmm. He had worked with James. He had access to all of James's, you know, kind of um, ethnomusicological uh, investigations, all of these uh, tribal and ethnic instrumentation that they had recorded, that they had researched and recorded. And Simon had been there. At, at James's side throughout all that. He, go, he dates all the way back to Titanic. So I've known wow. Simon for ages. I hadn't made the cognitive leap yet to have him compose it. We always thought we'd get, you know, some big shot sort of top, somebody in the top three or four kind of, if, if you can even think in those, those terms. Yeah. Um, and Simon wasn't that established. He'd, he'd done a couple scores. Uh, a, a few, and they were uh, respected, but we we were trying to solve a proximal problem, which is we needed source music. We needed not be music for ceremony, for the actual performers to sing and to play and to do those things, because in creating a culture, and, and in this case, multiple cultures, you know, we had to, we had to, to, to see the fullness of their culture, which included vocal expression, music dance all of those things so we had choreographer we had and simon came in and he had already done the uh a kind of bridging project in a way which was for disney's uh pandora the land the world of avatar in orlando florida uh, he had created a lot of the music for that and he had scored the the ride the the banshee ride which is called flight of passage and so uh, he was continuing on James' work. James would have done that, obviously, uh, had he been alive. Mm -hmm. um, Simon and I, you know, we, we talk all the time. Every once in a while, we'll just be sitting there and we'll say, you know, I really miss him. And, and we do. You know, he's kind of always kind of in the room in a way. He's in this film. He's in the film. And, and the question was, how much do we continue themes that he created that are well-known that create a cognitive 
you know, uh, tether to the first film and, and that mm -hmm. are the, the DNA of that score. And how much do we let Simon explore new themes that make it a new story? It's its own story. It's not a clone, obviously, of the first film. So we had to kind of hit that, hit that balance, you know, and, and we had, you know, long discussions about that. And I said, look, as early as we can in the film, let's put people back in the Pandora that they know and recognize. And that, that has to do with the music as well as the visual. The very first image is the floating mountains. The very first thing you hear is, is you know, what I call the I see you theme. And uh, so, and he reiterated, he reiterated that with the flight theme, you know, for what we call date night, you know, where Jake and ATV are joyfully flying, flying around. And anybody that's married with kids knows what date night's all about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So it doesn't happen very uh, often. <laughs> yeah. And, but then he starts to assert himself with it, with his own, his own uh, voice thematically um, with, uh, you know, what I call the family theme. He, he called it song chord, I believe, and ultimately it manifested in different ways, uh, yeah. including the melody that, that um, Zoe is singing, right? It right is, yeah, it's beautiful. One very early on. But when it's, when it's writ large in a majestic orchestral theme, when that melody is pulled out and writ large, it's quite, it's quite beautiful. And uh, he had done that theme, interestingly enough, before I asked him to come and compose the music. He had just done it on his own wow. and was playing around. And, um, you know, I looked at the composers that were out there. I wanted, to, I wanted to really make sure I was making the right decision for the film. And the clincher for me is I went back and played that theme, which he called Song Chord. He had sent it to me as an MP3 file. And I sat there and I just pushed play and I, and I, and I listened to that and I went, you know what, screw it. We're halfway there. Let's just, <laughs> let's just plow ahead, you know? That's and right. so it was that, it was that theme, which was already embedded in the, in the fabric of the film. Cause it was the melody that Zoe had sung. And, and interestingly that her singing, you see and hear her singing twice in the film. Once at the beginning, it's such a beautiful melody. You don't, and she's singing kind of joyfully celebrating her children. And then at the end, toward the end, she's singing grieving as part of yeah. the grieving process. Same song, same performance of the song. Wow. It's what we project onto the singing. We hear the bittersweet kind of lament quality of it, but it's the same performance. It's really interesting. We just, we put the, the grieving you know, tribal makeup on her and put her in her 
kind of grieving uh, headdress, you know, after the fact, when Zoe performed it, she didn't, she didn't perform it differently. Um, wow. That's my memory of it anyway. I might be wrong if she might have done two takes, but, but I'm wow. pretty sure it's basically the same, same performance. And the other thing is it's production performance. It wasn't, it wasn't standing in a, in a sound booth in a recording studio. She was seated cross-legged on the stage. We made sure that we put up some sound baffles so that we got a, a nice clean acoustics. And we made sure that nobody moved a muscle. So yeah. we got good recording quality, but it was a production recording. It wasn't some sort of album version, you know, and that's what's in that's what's in the in the film, and that's what's in the end credits. So when she sings the entire song chord song in the end credits, that's that production recording, which I think is quite remarkable. <laughs> I could spend yeah. an entire day talking about not just Zoe's performance in this film, but the performances on a whole, because I, I spent quite a lot of time, you know, watching these fantastic Q&As that you've done talking about this film with all your wonderful craftsmen and women. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. when you hear about the process and, and, and it's just extraordinary. And, but the core of it are these beautiful, brilliant, honest, emotional performances. They, right. The film would be nothing without those. It needs those. I agree. To project 100%. Almost. You know, so much work that we do around production design and lighting and the visuals and bringing all these creatures to life and everything. It, all of that is singing backup 
to the characters, <laughs> you know, and the, the performances. It, one thing I, I wish I had a way to share more with a broader audience is to see a split screen of what the actors did and what their final CG characters look like, because yeah. it's one-to-one. It's, there isn't a molecule out of place mm. in terms of the performance coming through. But of course, the characters are impossible. They couldn't be done conventionally with makeup, which mm. drives us toward this, this, you know, this process. And, you know, I don't think we should spend too much of our time on it. But what I'm finding is that the actors really enjoy the process because they have 100% of my focus. Of course, they, they can always focus and interact with each other. And that's what drives their ability to make a scene truthful. I like that you use that word. But they yeah. also have 100% of my attention because I'm not distracted by dolly moves, camera moves, background, you know, extra uh, kind of, you know, organizing and lighting and maybe fighting the elements or fighting the sun moving and all of those things that will distract a director from performance mm. when you're putting it all together into one blender, when you're doing the cinematography and the acting at the same time. So I think people think of it as a more artificial, more synthetic way to make a movie. And I would submit that it's actually less, that the yeah. artificialities of photographic filmmaking um, actually outweigh those, the artificialities that we have with performance, performance capture. And I've done both. So I can speak, yeah. you know, from some authority there. And I know <laughs> yeah. how, how focused, I feel, I feel more, um, fulfilled as a writer who's now directing to bring the characters to life with the cast. I feel, I feel mm -hmm. more fulfilled in the process, which is what one of the things that attracts me to it, as well as obviously the final result, which is that it has this kind of waking dream state kind of quality. But I, th I do think that the vast majority of people in Hollywood, especially in the acting community, don't really understand what we're doing. Yeah. And I wanted just when you were talking about the the simplicity and beautiful, delicate nature of that song that she sings, and that's what's so brilliant. I think about the the score and the music in the film is you have this huge range of those that tender moment, but then you have even, you know, in that first kind of where the Navi are attacking the kind of um, the the production line, they're trying to stop the and and it's the voices, the huge choral voices and right, the drums, right. and so you kind He's of even slamming with voice. yeah. He's hitting you hard mm. with voice, almost using it like percussion. Yeah. That's what's great. amazing. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, James blazed the path there 
bringing bringing voice into it and then Simon explored that further finding different vocal rhythms and different kind of ethnic sources more like the Vanuatuan singers and and you know some of that uh, exploration versus some of the stuff that James was doing I mean, he wanted to create a uh, you know kind of a, a, a different musical approach for the sea people than we had for the forest people in the first film and I think that influenced percussion as, as well. You know, they have a more of a, a, a higher speed kind of wooden kind of percussion rather than a kind of a boomier drumskin kind of kind of percussion for the forest people. Yeah, it's almost like the kind of the, the, the musicality of the, the tribes. Is, there's a real connection with their- With the score. With the environment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. the score. Yeah, exactly. I heard um, Simon talking about this fantastic thing that he called Culture Club, which was this really beautiful encouragement. Not the band. <laughs> Not the band. We could sing Come a Chameleon, but we won't. Yeah, um, but, <laughs> yeah, but this beautiful encouragement for kind of cohesion and interaction between departments and to the right. point where, you know, he's coming up with ideas of instruments and 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 they're being 3D printed to be created. That's phenomenal it was all definitely cross-patched you know so that the production design people were designing musical instruments simon (laughs) was having to say about that i mean a lot of stuff gets captured that we don't necessarily use we've got Mm -hmm. lots of stuff of people playing all kinds of interesting percussion layouts that are that are unconventional that we're not we're even going beyond the kind of terrestrial ethnomusicology of it to well what what might an alien percussion section look like. Um, and we had done a lot of that exploration as well on the first film. And so he was continuing that that tradition. I mean, sooner or later, we'll be actually seeing people playing playing instruments, you know. Uh, and we would have in, in movie two if it, if it wasn't already over three hours. So <laughs> some of our some of our more fun experiments got cut out in the in the name of uh, linear plot development. But, you know, that it's how we think. We try to yeah. create a whole world and, and have an internal resonance. And uh, our troop players, um, probably more so than our cast, are also quite musical and dance-oriented and so on. So I, I don't know if, if, if it's widely known. There's a distinction between our core cast, the sort of the named characters, and our troop who play everybody else. So we don't bring in 100 extras for a crowd scene 
we use our 10 troop players and we just put different names on like, you know, uh, Medkaina male number four, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then they'll rip that <laughs> off and then it'll, you know, and so the, the crowd is kind of tiled together out of our same 10 uh, uh, troop players and they're highly, highly versatile actors and they, 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 they never know what they're going to be asked to do on a given day. And sometimes it's wow. dance, sometimes it's sing, sometimes it's, you know, play an old lady, sometimes it's play a young kid. They don't care. Whatever it is, That's just throw awesome. it at them. And they'll just, they'll just hurl themselves into the moment and, and make it happen. And they're just wonderful, wonderful people to, to work with. And they've all been with us since the first film. So it's kind of like our, our cast that carried over from one and our troupe, who all carried over, formed the kind of the beating heart of what we call the Avatar family. And the yeah. Avatar family is a, it was one of the more powerful reasons for me to want to return and do, do more films because there's such a sense of, of a team of creative people who understand and love and respect each other and love working together, love showing up every day, you know, to do the hard yards. And it, it produces a kind of a joyfulness in the, in the process. And when the new folks came in, whether it was our younglings, you know, who mm -hmm. played our, our teenagers, or whether it was uh, Kate Winslet uh, or Cliff Curtis, they came in and they, they dropped into the middle of this thing that it immediately, it was like sort of going to, to uh, you know, a, a prayer revi revival meeting, you know, where everybody stands <laughs> up and starts singing and they're like, oh shit, I guess I gotta do that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so great, sounds like the best job in the world. Um, it, there are days when it <laughs> days when it's not, and there are days when it when it definitely is. Well, I mean, um, obviously, there are days when we're solving really hard problems and we don't know how to do it. And yeah. I, I kind of, in a way, in retrospect, maybe not in the moment so much, but in retrospect, I'll look back and say those were our best days mm -hmm. because yeah. we didn't know the answer. We couldn't just look it up. We had, nobody had ever done it before. We couldn't yeah. just look up how to do. It. We had to figure it out. And there's a lot of that on an Avatar movie. You're always mm -hmm. trying to figure out something that's never been solved before, but before nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're running out of time. So a couple of things I just wanted to get before we run out of time is where, so where are you with regards to the next films? You know, you kind of, you, the scripts are written. Um, what, right, I mean, right. Yeah. So, what can you, what, what can you say? Yeah. So Avatar 3 is basically in the can. So we're basically wow. the host. We're in post on that. Now, I'll probably take, I'm going to take a moment when the dust clears to kind of assess what people loved and what they responded to the most in the, in this current release. And yeah. I may go back and tinker a little bit and we may go back and do a couple of moments here and there. It won't be, it won't be radical, but maybe fine tune it a bit to emphasize that which people are responding to. For example, Loak really emerged as a character that people went with. Yeah. So I might find ways to sort of now he's already the narrow. Oh, I'm giving away something here. He, every <laughs> every one of the avatars. But this is okay. I think okay. It, I think it can be intriguing for people to think about what's coming. Jake was our voiceover narrator for movie one and for movie two, and we have a different narrator for each of the subsequent films. We see it through the eyes of a different character, and and movie three is through Loak's eyes. Wow. So. You know, Britton Dalton really proved himself, I think. He's just a wonderful, heartfelt character and a very sweet young human, you know, that I yeah. just really loved, loved working with. He stayed out of the limelight because he doesn't, he doesn't want 
fame and glory. He just yeah. wants to do the work, you know, wow. which is, which I think is cool. I kind of respect. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Thank you, you know? for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, he's a great, he's a, he's a, a great kid and a really talented performer. But anyway, things like that, you know, yeah. but we also know that people responded so well to Kate and to oh, yeah. Curtis and they love, they love Sam and Zoe and they love young, you know, Bailey Bass as Sirea, who's just so beautiful. And we're actually really? okay kind of on all that because the story just continues with all the characters that we we've learned to love, including Courage, who we've who we love to hate, and including Spider, who's caught in the middle with the sort oh, of yeah. the toxic father and the good father and all that. That that whole all of the dynamics and Kiri we we know that the audience really responded well to her. She really comes into her own in movie three. So I kind of feel pretty good. Yeah. About I'm excited. When can I buy my ticket? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's, that, there's that little bit that we call virtual production where I have to go and actually figure out all the camera moves and all the lighting for, for 3,000 VFX shots. Okay. What you also need to do is celebrate your 25th anniversary of Titanic, sir. Good point. Happy, an happy anniversary. We're sort of in that anniversary period. We we chose we chose uh, Valentine's Day or Valentine's Day weekend yeah. to re-release the film for its 25th anniversary because one of the strangest things about the Titanic re release was that we actually opened quite modestly and then grew, mm. and we were big over the holiday season, but we didn't come down very much. And our biggest single day of the entire release was two months into the run, which is nuts. I, I guarantee you that's never happened before and it will never happen again. And it was Valentine's Day. We made more money on Valentine's Day than any other day in the entire run. And it was two months into the to the release. Most films are are one and done over and out in, in two or three weeks. And mm. we were on week eight or weekend eight, I think. So, uh, you know, Titanic, if you present valued Titanic, Avatar doesn't come close to it, you know which is kind of amazing to, to, to think about. But we'll see. I mean, the film looks gorgeous. I just watched it uh, yesterday. You know, everybody's, uh, you know, kind of remaster happy these days. All, all we did, we didn't really do anything other than we just, we just uh, did a, uh, a remix in Atmos because Atmos is now the, the, the best, the Ne Plus Ultra, you know, sound format. You were talking about it at the Leicester Square which yeah. just meant bringing some of the sound effects a little more overhead because there's a little bit more of an overhead presence in the, in the surround speakers. So it's not a big deal. Visually, it's the same, it's the same film that we released 10 years ago in 3D, you know, mm -hmm. and, and digitally remastered in 4K. It looks spectacular. It sounds spectacular. It's the movie that you've seen. You know, we didn't, we didn't change a frame of the film itself. You know, Kate and Leo in that movie, I think they've, they're no longer Kate and Leo in a funny way because they, they've hmm. moved on. They've done so many other characters. Yeah. 25 years later, they don't look the same. It's almost like Jack and Rose are, Rose. Uh, are stuck in amber. Yeah, they'll always be there for us, says Jack and Rose, you know. And they still keep getting those questions about the door. They still oh, don't, keep, they still don't keep getting get the me started. So <laughs> we are doing as a companion piece with uh, on Disney Plus through, through National Geographic. I've done a forensic investigation with hypothermia experts at a lab in New Zealand. And we've finally, we can lay the whole thing to rest with some actual hard science. I won't tell you the outcome. I would encourage people for, for whom this is still a burning issue. 
25 oh, years later. I would encourage I love them to that. check out our, our Nat Geo special. Well, I've already told you that I love the previous one that you've done on there as well, which is, is such a great watch for any Titanic fans or any James Cameron fans. Go and check that out. That's a great thing to look forward to. Um, listen, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for your time. Also, just one thing I wanted to point is thank you as well for writing such great female characters as well. You know, whether it's Sarah Connor or Natiri Kiri or, you know, um, yeah. even Lindsay Brigham in, in, in the abyss, you know, kind of you've I just know, got this she... this great kind of thing of writing great female characters. So long may it continue, sir. And they're not all the same. I mean, Sarah had a different kind of trauma. Lindsay was basically just a very uptight engineer who thought in very rectilinear patterns and has her mind blown by this alien contact. I mean, I I love the exploration of all all the aspects you know i mean i'm a, I'm a believer in the archetypes and the tripartite goddess that the that the the greeks you know proposed the kind of the you know the the virgin the mother the grandmother they called it the crone you know in classic classic terms mm. it's like all the all the female aspects are fascinating to me and and uh you know i work i work, work my way through them in all my in all my stories somehow yeah i just think right. we need a lot more goddess energy in the in the world right now and a lot less <laughs> A lot less, you know, kind of testosterone, uh, highly aggressive, competitive mentality. Not that women yeah. can't be competitive. Oh, yeah. I you right <laughs> yeah, for that? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, James. It's really lovely to get to chat to you, and I hope we get the chance to do it again for number three. Thank you so much. Okay, and we, we absolutely will. It was good to okay. see you again. You too. Right. Take care. Hey. Have a great day. Bye. From James Horner's score to Titanic, that's Distant Memories, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the wonderful James Cameron. My huge thanks to James for taking the time to talk to us. I'm not going to lie, I'd done a couple of events leading up to us doing the chat, but that did not diminish my slight fear and nerves about talking to him one-on-one -on -one at such length. But he was so generous so enthusiastic um, and I hope you enjoyed that 
Avatar is still on general release, while Titanic hits our cinema screens again on February the 10th, just in time for Valentine's. Now, if you're new to soundtracking, please head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our previous episodes. Uh, follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We're at Soundtracking UK. And we also have a YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to. In fact, I promise you by Monday, I will have the James Cameron interview up on YouTube along with Damien Chazelle, uh, which I am trying to edit frantically as we speak. Next up, oh my goodness. I mean, I feel like this podcast is the gift that keeps on giving, purely selfishly because I get to speak to so many amazing people. Uh, this is someone we've been trying to get on the podcast for a long time. And what's wonderful is we got him together with his composer. So, <laughs> coming on Monday, you will have the delightful Guillermo del Toro and Alexander Desplat talking about their beautiful version of Pinocchio. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.